All right, we are picking up where we left off two weeks ago in our study of the greatest sermon of all time, Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. So I do hope you have your Bibles with you. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be tackling the final 11 verses of the chapter this week. And I've got to say, this passage is really, really good. It's powerful. Uh, you've probably heard the old saying, uh, this is where we separate the men from the boys. Well, this passage is kind of one of those kind of passages where Jesus, with the challenging words that he gives us, uh, separates those that are serious about following him from those that, eh, not so serious. And so this is a great passage. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you today. It's powerful. It's deep. It's challenging. I'm calling this, this message today, Raising the Bar, Revenge and Hatred. So we're in Matthew 5, picking up in verse 38 in just a few moments. I want to make sure we're all on the same page uh, as far as what we've learned so far in Matthew chapter 5. Remember that Jesus, uh, in verses 17 through 20, tackled two huge misunderstandings that people had of him in his day. And frankly, many people still have today. Uh, The first misunderstanding he tackled in verses 17 through 19, this misunderstanding that he had come to abolish the Old Testament. And Jesus makes it clear in verses 17 through 19, no, I didn't. I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. Quite the opposite. I came to uplift it and even to fulfill it. And then he tackled the second misunderstanding in verse 20, this misunderstanding that if we are mature in our faith, if we are serious followers of God, we're going to look like a Pharisee. And Jesus says, not at all. Remember what what he said in verse 20. He says, I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus sets out midway through Matthew chapter five to draw a clear distinction between Phariseeism and true Christianity. Uh, Phariseeism is shallow. Phariseeism is very showy and Phariseeism really is only skin deep. So it's it's hypocritical. And Jesus sets out not to uh, to destroy or obliterate or even downplay the Old Testament. He sets out to point out how Phariseeism is not what God had in mind for the followers of Christ. So many people follow Phariseeism instead of following Christ. Uh, Pharisees. It's all about how we look on the outside Uh, to a Pharisee. It's about putting on a show for those around us to impress others around us. But remember that God made it clear in the Old Testament that he doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And so Pharisees to the casual observer may look very much like a true follower of Christ. But God looks past what's on the surface and sees that Pharisees are wasting away on the inside because they've never truly confessed their sin to God. They've never truly repented of their sin and they've never put Jesus Christ in the driver's seat of their lives. So in the second half of Matthew 5, Jesus sets out to, to make it very clear he's not anti-Old Testament. He's actually anti-Phariseeism. And he gives us six examples of how his standards and God the Father's standards are so much higher than the standards of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Jesus raises the bar and makes that so clear in these six examples. His first example, remember, was in verses 21 through 26. Uh, To the Pharisees, obeying the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder, was simply about avoiding avoiding murdering somebody. But Jesus says that's not going to cut it. 
You see, God looks to the heart. And if our hearts are harboring anger and unforgiveness towards someone to God, that is heart murder. Jesus' second example is in verses 27 through 30. To the Pharisees, obeying the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, simple, simply meant uh, don't sleep with someone you're not married to. But Jesus says, no, that's not going to cut it. You see, God looks at the heart and he knows that all adultery begins with lust in the heart. So to God, lust after another woman that you're not married to is adultery in the heart. His third example is in verses 31 and 32. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. The Pharisees taught that a man could divorce his wife for just about any reason as long as he did the proper paperwork. And Jesus says, no, it's not that simple. There's only one acceptable reason for divorce, Jesus said, and that's marital unfaithfulness. And so if a man divorces his wife and there's not marital unfaithfulness involved and he turns around and marries another woman to God, he's committing adultery with his new wife. Because in God's eyes, he's still married to his first wife. He didn't have a legitimate reason for divorcing her in the first place. So Jesus, once again, is raising the bar. And then finally, in verses 33 through 37, Jesus gave a fourth example that we looked at a couple weeks ago. The Pharisees taught that certain vows and promises had to be kept while others didn't have to be kept. And so Jesus raises the bar and says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Jesus said, no matter where you are, no matter what your circumstances, no matter who you're with, God wants you to be honest. He wants you to be reliable. He wants you to depend, be dependable all the time. He raises the bar with God's standard for honesty. And so as we pick up in verse 38 this week, we're going to look at the fifth example of how Jesus Christ is raising the bar. A little bit later in this message, we'll look at his sixth and final example in the final few verses of this chapter. So we're picking up in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. Here we go. Matthew 5, starting in verse 38, looking at Jesus' fifth example of raising the bar. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, oops, that's this one over here. <laughs> someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Well, each time that Jesus has introduced an example of how he is raising the spiritual bar, he has begun with the phrase, you have heard that it was said. You'll find that phrase almost verbatim all six times that he gives examples. Here in verse 38, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, what law is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about the law of retribution. Sometimes it's called the law of retaliation. Uh, that word retaliation comes from a Latin word that means to pay back in kind. Now, I want you to keep that little definition in mind, to pay back in kind, because we're going to be fleshing that out together over the next few minutes. Over the course of human history, many countries and civilizations around the world have had some kind of law of retribution, law of retaliation built into their penal system. 
And so the furthest back that we can find the law of retribution is about 1,750 years B.C., Ancient Mesopotamia, under the rule of Hammurabi, Hammurabi had what was called the Hammurabi Code, or the Codes of Hammurabi. And several of these codes dealt with the laws of retribution, the laws of retaliation. So think about that. These laws, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, date back more than 3,750 years. That's a long time. And when God gave ancient Israel the 613 laws of Moses, the law of retribution was included in those laws. In fact, the law of retribution is really one of the pillars of ancient Israel's penal code. So here's how it reads in Exodus chapter 22, verses 23 through 25. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. That's how it reads in Exodus 22. And I want you to listen to how God says it in Leviticus chapter 34, verses 17 through 22. Now, as we read this together, I want you to notice the repetition of the word restitution. If anyone takes the life of a human being, he must be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, whatever he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so he is to be injured. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution. But whoever kills a man must be put to death. So was the law of retribution carried out literally in the ancient world? And the answer is, it depends where you were. Ancient Babylonia under the rule of Hammurabi, it seems pretty clear that this was carried out literally because under Hammurabi, he would have his soldiers at times gouge out eyes and hack off hands that had stolen And so it seems to have been carried out literally in ancient Mesopotamia. But what about in ancient Israel? How was it carried out under God's rule in in God's country? And there is no indication in the Old Testament or in all of the uh, historical documents we have related to ancient Israel. There is no indication that this was ever carried out literally in ancient Israel. Uh, There's no record of uh, Israeli uh, Jewish leaders or or courts ordering eyes to be gouged out or hands to be hacked off or or bones to be broken or teeth to be broken in retribution for them doing the same thing to others. And so if that's the case, if if God didn't literally mean an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, what did he mean? Why did he give this law? What did he mean? Well, let me give it to you in a nutshell. God gave the law of retribution to emphasize that when the Jewish magistrates hand down a criminal sentence, catch this, the punishment should always mirror the crime. Or to say it another way, the punishment must match the injury. So when you think about it, this is good for both the victim and the perpetrator. The law of retribution restrained a victim's family from unleashing all the fire of hell on that guy who had wronged their loved one. The response had to be reasonable in a court of law. 
and the punishment also must be fitting to the crime. On the other hand, the law of retribution ensured that every punishment provided a strong enough deterrent to keep the guy from committing the same crime the very next week. And so it was very important to God in order to maintain law and order that punishments must be just, not overkill, but not too flimsy either. The punishment should always mirror the crime. So here in Matthew 5, 38 through 42, uh, does Jesus revoke the Old Testament law of retribution? And the answer is no, he doesn't. He doesn't. Once again, he upholds the Old Testament law, but what he does is come after the Pharisees' way of misinterpreting the Old Testament law. You see, the Pharisees and teachers of the law had taken the law of retribution, which was designed to be used in a court of law, and they had taken it and used it to justify private retaliation within their personal relationships. Bottom line, they used it to justify revenge in their homes, on their loved ones. They used it to justify revenge out in the marketplace or at work or in their neighborhood or wherever. They used it as a personal retaliatory law of revenge where they could take the law into their own hands. Every time someone offended them or or criticized them or accidentally tripped them on the street, they believed that they could take the law into their own hands and get some payback. They could make that person pay For what he did. And they claimed that God's law backed him up when they did it. So, once again, the law of retribution was given by God to Jewish courts as a guide for handing down just punishments on lawbreakers. And Jesus reminds all of us that it was not given as a mandate for personal vengeance on people who have wronged us. Jesus gives us a general principle in verse 39. He says, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is basically saying, don't stoop to an evil person's level. That makes sense, doesn't it? Don't respond in kind. Don't counterpunch. There is no room in my kingdom for petty tit for tat vengeance. God must get so frustrated. Our Lord Jesus Christ must get so frustrated when he sees his sons and daughters get into this tit-for-tat personal vengeance. Well, you did this to me, so I'm going to do that to you. Well, you said that to me, so I'm going to say that to you. You went to me, so our temptation is to turn around and go right back at that person, right? You know you've been there. You know that's our, our natural temptation and tendency. Someone cusses you out, your first thought is, I'm going to cuss them out. Someone gets all up in your face and raises their voice and yells at you, you want to get all up in their face and yell at them. Someone gives you a bird on the freeway, what is your inclination for many of us to give them a bird back? And Jesus says, no, retaliatory personal vengeance is not for anyone who's in the kingdom of heaven. Don't stoop to that person's level. And in verses 39 through 42, Jesus gives us five quick examples of how we should treat people who have hurt us or wronged us. Let's look at these examples quickly. Example number one is in verse 39. It basically goes like this. When someone you don't like slaps you, turn the other cheek. Turn the other cheek. 
Just like in our day, most people in Jesus's day were right handed. And so if I, as a right handed man, wanted to slap someone on their right cheek, how would I do that with my right hand? Well, unless I'm coming up behind them and slapping them from behind, the only way I can do that is by giving them a backhand, right? And so that's what Jesus is referring to here. He's referring to a backhand, which just so happens in his day was the most insulting slap that a person could receive from another. In fact, in some courts of law, if you backhand slapped somebody, you could be fined twice as much as if you had given them a forehand slap across the left cheek. And so Jesus, what's he saying? If someone gives you the most insulting slap, let them take the other slap as well. Well, that sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? What is he saying for us today in in 2021? Is Jesus saying that uh, we ourselves are, are supposed to offer ourselves up as the world's punching bag? Is Jesus saying that if a burglar breaks into my house and and shoves a shiv in my right kidney that I'm to offer him my left kidney as well? Is he saying if someone wants to kidnap one of my daughters that I should offer him a second daughter? Is he saying, ladies, if you're in an abusive relationship and your husband's slapping you around every day, that you should let him slap you around twice every day? No, 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 and no. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not addressing criminal behavior in his teaching. Sure, in his day, you could take someone to court if they slapped you on the face. But if you did take him to court, that was like a misdemeanor. It wasn't a felony. Jesus isn't talking about criminal behavior. He's not talking about felonies here. Jesus is addressing non-criminal interactions in our interpersonal relationships. So he is saying this. Christians, as you follow me as Lord and Savior and live the lives that I'm calling you to live in the kingdom of heaven. If someone insults you in a big way, don't retaliate by insulting them back. Stand there and take it. As long as you are doing what God has called you to do in that moment, keep doing what God has called you to do. Stand there and take it. Remember Shimei from the Old Testament? David was leaving the city. And Shimei was cussing at him and throwing dirt and rocks at him. David just kept doing what he was called to do. He just kept going forward. He kept going forward. Kept going forward. If you are doing what God has called you to do and someone is spitting all sorts of crud in your ear, you stand your ground. Keep doing what God's called you to do. Turn the other cheek if need be. Keep doing what God has called you to do. Example number two is in verse 40. If your enemy wants to unjustly take something from you, give him more than he's asking for. Have you ever watched the show, The People's Court? It's been on the air for decades. My grandmother loved that show, particularly when Judge Wapner was the judge back years ago on that show. And and the basic format of the show is pretty much unchanged from decades ago. Uh, You have the plaintiff and the defendant, and they go at it, and finally the judge has a ruling. Usually someone wins. And so, so often, after that defendant loses, he comes out into the lobby and he's interviewed. What do you think about the decision? And you know what happens most of the time. That defendant has to pay that lady 500 bucks, and he's just ranting and raving about having to pay her 500. I can't believe that no good woman is making me pay 500 bucks. And I can't believe how unjust that judge was, and he's just going I'm going to give her $500 and not a dime more. And Jesus says, how about this? 
If someone accuses you and wants to take you to court for $500, why not pay him $700? In fact, why don't you give them the $700, even more than they're asking for, before you ever get to court in the first place? Wow, Jesus is definitely raising the bar here. He says, don't carry out retribution. No tit for tat. Give what someone is asking of you. Example number three is in verse 41. If someone who can't stand you asks to help him, ask you to help him for 30 minutes with a menial task, help him for an hour instead. So how do I get that from what Jesus is saying in verse 41? Well, in Jesus's day, Rome was an occupying force in Israel. And so there was this kind of unwritten rule that if a Roman soldier said, hey, you, I want you to carry my backpack and my supplies for a whole mile. There was this rule that you had to do it as a Jewish man or woman. If the soldier says, carry my stuff, you had to carry his stuff, but you only had to carry it for a mile. So guess what most Jewish men would do if they were forced to carry that guy's supplies for a mile? As soon as they hit that one mile marker, they dropped it right where they were, right? It didn't matter if they were in the middle of a street. It didn't matter if they were in the middle of a river. Once they crossed that one mile marker, bam, I'm done. I fulfilled my duty. They drop it on the spot. They sneer at that soldier and they turn around and go back home. Jesus says, don't do that. He asks you to go one mile. Go the second mile. Someone asks you to do a menial task for them. Someone you don't even like. Don't just do the menial task. Do something else on top of that menial task. Jesus says, even when someone treats you like garbage, don't give them the bare minimum effort. Go the extra mile. When someone asks you to wash the dishes, go the extra mile. Wipe off the countertop as well. When someone asks you to do their laundry for them, go the extra mile. Do someone else's laundry while you're at it. When someone asks you to put $5 of gas into their gas tank, go ahead and put $10 of gas into their gas tank. Jesus says, go the extra mile. Example number four is in verse 42. When an under undeserving person asks you for something, if he really needs it, give it to him. Now, I don't believe that this means that God is calling us to give money to every panhandler in Victorville. I rarely give money to a panhandler because I don't think that most of the time it does them a bit of good. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying, I believe, is that if someone approaches you with a legitimate need and you have the ability to meet that need, help him. Even if that person drives you up the wall, help him anyway. Finally, his fifth example in verse 42, when an undeserving person Ask to borrow something from you. If she really needs it, let her borrow it. Amen? If she really needs it, let her borrow it. If she legitimately needs something that you don't need this moment, let her borrow it. Even if she is rude or mean or undeserving. Wow. Jesus is really raising the bar. Well, as we move into verse 43, Jesus will share with us his sixth and final example of how he is raising the bar and how his standards are so much higher and deeper than those standards of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Jesus' sixth example is going to deal with hate. Picking up in verse 43 here in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. 
and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, well, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, the words love your neighbor appear in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. The verse reads like this. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love your neighbors yourself. Remember, Jesus tells us that's the second most important command in all the Old Testament law. So, love your neighbor is in the Old Testament law. It's right there in Leviticus chapter 19. Now, let me ask you, where is the Old Testament law found? Hate your enemy. And the answer is, it ain't there. Right? It's not in the Old Testament anywhere. So why does Jesus bring that up here? Well, he brings it up because the Pharisees had added to the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law in no way said hate your enemies. In fact, it said at times quite the opposite. Uh, Look, for example, at Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. God said, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. Jesus is talking about your enemies and people who hate you. He says, help them out. And that's right there in the Old Testament. And so Jesus knew that the Pharisees had taken God's Old Testament law and twisted it and and misrepresented it. You see, Jesus knew that in his day, many of those uh, religious leaders had taken that law, love your neighbor as yourself. And they had said that law also implies that we are to hate those who are not our neighbors. So if someone is your neighbor, love him. If he's not your neighbor, hate him. And that's what they taught the people. God meant by love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, no. Look again at verses 44 and 45. He basically says, not so with you if you're my follower. If you're in my kingdom, I want you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And by the way, when Jesus says pray for those who persecute you, he doesn't mean pray that they'll drop dead. Jesus is referring to legitimate, nice prayers. God bless him. God prosper her. God, help her to accept you as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray the best for him. Jesus says, pray for your enemies that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, how on earth could I possibly love someone who treats me like dirt? How could I do that? Because love is not an emotion. Love is a decision. Love is a choice. And Jesus calls us to choose love just as God the Father chooses love as He interacts with you and me. God sends rain to water atheists' crops just like He sends rain to water Christians' crops. Isn't that nice of God? Sure it is. Why would He do that? Because God is love. Jesus didn't just love the one leper who returned to Him and thanked Him for healing Him. Jesus also loved the nine other leopards who were unappreciative and ungrateful. Well, why would Jesus do that? Because God is love. 
Jesus didn't just love Mary Magdalene at the foot of the cross because she was there to support him. He also loved those soldiers who were gambling for his clothes at the foot of the cross. Why would he do that? Because God is love. Jesus has spent the last half of chapter five shining the spotlight on the shallow, flashy, hypocritical religion of the Pharisees. And meanwhile, he has been raising the spiritual bar for you and me who follow him as Lord. And he ends this amazing chapter by saying plainly in verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. That's all you got to do is be perfect. Simple as that, right? Does Jesus actually expect us to be absolutely perfect? Well, let me shed a little light on this verse. That word perfect is a translation of the, the Greek word teleos. That word teleos is also used in James chapter 1, verse 4, where James says, Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That word teleos literally means mature. So Jesus is saying, be mature, be grown up, if you will, as your heavenly Father is mature and grown up. Well, Jesus is really lifting the bar. He's raising the bar for each of us. Jesus basically says to us at the end of this chapter, enough already with your shallow, self-centered religion. Don't be like the Pharisees. It's time to get out of the spiritual nursery and grow up. It's time to go deeper and aim higher. It's time to bring heaven, especially the unconditional love of God, to your little corner of the world there's a reason why this final verse, be perfect, be mature as your heavenly father is perfect. There's a reason he places that in the context of talking about unconditional love. And we might wonder how on earth when someone hates me and is mean to me and cusses me out and has stabbed me in the back. How on earth can I show them mercy? How on earth can I show them grace? How on earth can I possibly show them unconditional love? That was fine for you 2,000 years ago, but how do I do it today in 2021? Well, if you've ever wondered what unconditional love and grace and mercy look like in the real world today, look no further than Mary Johnson. You might forget most of what I've said in this message today, but I don't think you'll ever forget Mary Johnson. We end tonight with one of the most potent powers on earth. It can change lives in an instant. Everyone has it. It's the power to forgive. Watch it now in action in Steve Hartman's Assignment America. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20 and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This 
close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow, she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son. But the forgiveness is for me. It's for me. For O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself. And I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Yes, I'm grateful. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience so of one. Steve Hartman, CBS yes, News, Minneapolis. For all you've done for me. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you have been so good to me. You've been so good to us. Thank you, Lord, for this powerful example of forgiveness, grace, mercy, and unconditional love in this sweet Saint Mary. Thank you for Mary Johnson. Thank you, Lord, that we're able to witness this example of what you have in mind as you raise the bar for us. Lord Jesus, our natural tendency is to retaliate, to seek out revenge, to have tit-for-tat justice in our personal interactions. Someone yells at us, we want to yell at them. Someone cusses at us, we want to cuss at them. Someone shuts us out, we want to shut them out. Someone doesn't help us, we don't want to help them. But Jesus, You so gently but directly said, I expect more of You. Lord, honestly, we can't do this on our own. We need your help. Lord, I want to be a serious follower of yours. I don't want to play around in the nursery anymore. I want to rise to the challenge. Help me to do that. Help each of us to do that. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to pray for those who persecute us and lift up good prayers for them. Help us not to respond in kind and stoop to others' low levels as they come against us. Lord, help us to continue doing what You've called us to do, continue saying what You've called us to say, 
continue standing when you call us to stand for the glory of God and the good of others so that the world may be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are going to take communion together in just a moment. Uh, Some of you may not be joining us for communion, but don't leave yet. Remember, we've got a special surprise at the end of the service. Right after we take communion, we'll get to celebrate the baptism of uh, one of our newer attenders, uh, Jaime Gonzalez, who was just baptized a couple weeks ago. I don't want you to miss that. So hang on for just a few moments, and we'll finish our service with that baptism instead of having a final song today. But for those of you who are taking communion with us first, we'll do that together. The bread represents Jesus' body broken for us. He said to do it in a worthy manner. Search your mind and heart. Confess any sin that needs confessing. Make sure that you are in a right place with God before you take the bread that reminds us of his body broken for us. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And in a similar way, he took the juice, the wine. He says it represents my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. I thought for a long time that one of the best ways to end a worship service is with a baptism. New life in Christ that we get to celebrate. If someone takes a stand and says, I'm serious about following Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior from this point forward, I don't care who's watching, I don't care who's listening, God, the angels, or anyone else, I'm following Jesus from this point forward. Let's celebrate together as we watch Jaime's baptism.